Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin, and my guest today is Marcy Bliss. Marcy is the CEO of Wedgwood Pharmacy. Marcy, welcome. Thanks, Katie. Glad to be here. Um, it's really great to have you here. We've had a chance to have a couple of conversations in the past, but I love that you're here now talking to everyone. Um, and we'll get into why in a second. This is kind of a time sensitive conversation. So, uh, definitely everybody, you want to listen to this. If you use compounded medications, you want to listen to this and that's everyone. So before we jump in though, Marcy, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got here? Sure. Well, I've been with Wedgwood Pharmacy. This is my 24th year. So I have been around the pharmacy space and the animal health industry for all of those years. When I started way back when, Wedgwood was already serving equine veterinarians. And that year we started also serving companion animal veterinarians when there were a number of really important medications that went on back order in the commercial market and uh, like Cisapride went on back order that year. Canamycin, Liquiclor, those drugs all went on back order. And we decided to lean in and fill the void so that uh, veterinarians could continue to care for their patients. Yeah, and thank goodness, right? Because, I, I mean, I have compounded medications for my pets, like, in my house right now. And I only have two pets, and they're fine. But I don't know. They're just a fact of life. Like, I don't know what we would do without them. So thank goodness. Um, and that's a long time to be with Wedgwood. So you, you know, the company pretty well and the company knows you. <laughs> I do. I feel like I grew up there, you know, yeah. you start a career and there's so much to learn and there's been so much change in the industry. And that's what we're talking today, right? There's more change coming up. And so over the years, you get to know the customers, what's important to our veterinarians. And, you know, I'm a pet owner myself, so I understand why it's important to pet parents as well. Yeah. In my communications and visits to Wedgwood, like it's been really fun to find out how many of you are pet owners and how deeply that informs the passion behind um, what you do and why it's so important to you. Um, and so that's something that I wanted to ask you. You know, we, we at AHA publish guidelines, um, you know, a few times a year. Dr. Ingrid Taylor is our guidelines guru and she makes these beautiful guidelines happen that talk about best practices and each guideline has a mascot, and they like to ask us, and we like to ask our guests, what guides you in your work um, in vet med in general? Uh, what's your guiding light? Well, I would say our mission, number one, is our guiding light. And you mentioned that a lot of our employees are pet owners. They've worked as veterinary technicians. They're equestrians. So, you know, our mission is to improve the lives of animals and those who love them. So that includes, um, you know, the caregivers or people that you know, love and support uh, zoo animals, etc. So, so we really are dedicated to veterinarians and their customers and, and our team all feels the same way. So when we hire and we hire people that get that, it's really easy to get people enrolled in the purpose of the organization. I think the other two things that really I'm guided by um, are values. One of the most important ones is integrity. 
So making decisions to do what's right, even if it costs a lot. And an example of that is we spend a lot of money on testing and do even more testing than is required by the regulations. So sometimes that means it's less efficient. Sometimes it means you know, you're doing extra checks through the process, but it's the right thing to do. So I think uh, our values are very important and that's the most important one. And then advocacy. Uh, I have spent a lot of time and, and learned from our founders, George and Lucy Malmberg, that you have to fight for what is right. So I spend a lot of my time um, speaking with members of Congress, educating people about what compounded medication is, why veterinarians need it, and then, you know, being a loud voice and protecting veterinary access to what they need to treat their patients. Yeah, and, and it's wonderful that you do because vet med needs advocates um, in that regard. And we don't always know what the channels are to do that for ourselves. You know, um, we just kind of see these compounded medications appear and we call pharmacies and they get shipped. And I know that before I started thinking about it more, um, you know, with regard to Wedgwood specifically, I didn't think about it at all. I just assumed that compounded medications are just always going to be there. And if I couldn't find something I needed, you know, in the regular pharmacy, I was going to be able to call somebody and they were going to make it for me. And um, that is not true. <laughs> that is not always true. Um, and so your role in making sure that um, people who don't have anything to do with veterinary medicine, but make the rules, <laughs> um, your role in making sure that they know what we need and why we need it and working really hard to make sure that we have access to it when we do need it and we know how to get it is, is so important. It's central to how we practice medicine. Um, there's huge importance, you know, this is not at all taken away from what the, the companies do who make the drugs for animals. Um, this is a complementary thing that we need the brand name drugs and we need compounded drugs and we need all of those options to be able to practice well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love thinking about that kind of synergy and everything that's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And the veterinarians really need to be the ones who decide what's yeah. appropriate for the patient, right? Yes. Veterinarians should choose an FDA approved drug that has gone through testing for safety and efficacy before they use a compounded drug. But if they have a patient that has unique needs that can't by, be met by that FDA-approved drug, or if they have a patient that is a compliance challenge, or if they have a, a drug that's on manufacturer back order and now they, they're worried about continuity of care, they need to have the ability to choose a compounded medication. So, yeah. and you know, you would, it's been interesting to work over the last six months actually with the FDA in, we're going to get into the GFI 256 and the nomination process, but, you know, they're experts in FDA-approved drugs, and they're not experts necessarily in compounded medications. So through the nomination process and through conversations we've had with FDA, um, we've been able to, you know, share kind of the perspectives of the industry and veterinarians and, and why they need what they need on hand. And it's really, I think, been uh, a learning experience for everybody. Yeah. So you mentioned GFI 256, and I'm going to ask you more about that in a second, because that's really the big reason we're talking today. Although I've been wanting to get you on the podcast since like two years ago. So I'm glad this is happening since before I knew there was going to be a podcast. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so before we jump into that about the GFI, can you just give us sort of a, I know it's a huge topic, but can you give sort of a nutshell version of like, the absolute basics that vet teams, maybe not even necessarily just veterinarians, what do vet teams need to know about compounding pet meds? 
besides that we should use an FDA-approved drug if we can, if it's available? Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, there are the, the GFI 256 was put out by the FDA as guidance for industry. And guidance is not a law or regulation, but for practical purposes, they have indicated they're going to enforce this guidance and they're going to do it most likely at the pharmacy level. So pharmacies are going to have to comply with this FDA current thinking. Outside of the FDA thinking, there are state laws and regulations, right? There's no shortage of regulations in veterinary medicine. There's no shortage of regulations in pharmacy either, really. We're licensed by all 50 state boards of pharmacy, by the DEA. So there's lots of regulations. But in this case, the current thinking is that veterinarians um, should have access to compounded medication. And I believe this version of the guidance was written to ensure access, but it's really how veterinarians are accessing it that's going to change. So the FDA is reviewing nominations for drugs and considering whether a veterinarian should be allowed to have those drugs on hand for office use for emergency and urgent situations, or whether that medication that's compounded needs to be ordered on a patient-specific basis. And in in most cases, if it's being ordered on a patient-specific basis, a pharmacy will be asked to ask the veterinarian for their medical rationale. That sounds more complicated than it is. It means like, you know, a veterinarian can say a variety of things like, I can't get the cat to take this pill, or there's an ingredient, xylitol, in the commercial drug, and that's toxic to animals, or whatever. We have a a list of um, medical rationales. We're going to make it very easy for veterinarians to report that. But it is going to divide your access. If you're in a state now where you can order wherever you, whatever you need, either for your office or for your patients, there is now going to be kind of this challenging thing to navigate. Like, am I allowed to have this for my office or do I have to have it for a specific patient? Okay. So um, I'm going to use a case example here just to try to simplify it for everyone listening who's like, what? Because that's how I was when I first heard it. So, um, GFI, that stands for guidance for industry, right? So, um, so GFI 256 is basically a guidance that the FDA is putting into action starting April 1st, correct? And, um, it basically says that, like, so if I have a tiny little Shih Tzu puppy come in Mm -hmm. and, um, it needs a metronidazole that is, you know, in a liquid, forms. They can give it by dropper or, you know, whatever, because they can't get the, the pill can't come small enough for this, for this little dog. Um, and we're used to keeping, say, in our, in our clinic, a giant bottle of compounded metronidazole liquid in the fridge for tiny patients. Um, and we want to just dispense some of that into a smaller bottle for this Shih Tzu's owner to take home. Mm-hmm. Um, that based on GFI 256, it is possible that something like that would have to stop and that we would have to actually call a compounding pharmacy and get the drug made up and sent out just for that patient rather than keeping it in the hospital to dispense as needed. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And this only covers compounded medications that are made from active pharmaceutical ingredients or also known as bulk drug substances. So this does not mean that somebody couldn't take a metronidazole tablet and crush it and add it to a flavored suspension. However, that's very bitter, as you know, metronidazole mm-hmm. made from the tablet. So now metronidazole is one of those drugs 
that, you know, Wedgwood Pharmacy is, has nominated and made a case for why it needs to be available to veterinarians for office use, because you need to begin treatment like that immediately. So, um, so we have made that case for that drug and 192, I think, other drug families, um, because we know based on our history of our transactions, what veterinarians need for the office. Mm -hmm. We get more prescriptions than we do office orders, but we know there are certain drugs veterinarians need in the office. So that's where we started. We nominated those drugs. We're making that case with the FDA. And FDA has put more than 20 items on the positive list for office use. And they're still waiting to hear from veterinarians. There, there hasn't been a whole lot of comments. We're trying to support veterinarians in making comments, but they really want to hear from veterinarians. They want to hear you tell that story about the Shih Tzu and why you need that metronidazole in your office and, and not to wait for a pharmacy to compound that for you. Yeah. I mean, I know a whole bunch of people, if they listen to this and haven't heard this elsewhere or haven't really been paying attention to it elsewhere, because I know at, at, on Wedgwood's website, there's a whole bunch of information about this. Um, and I've seen you post your um, posts on social media about it too. Um, and so it's there's information out there. So it may have crossed people's paths already, but um, everybody's thinking about, especially as we work towards handling you know, more gentle handling, more cooperative care with our patients, especially everyone's thinking about that giant bottle of gabapentin that they have on the shelf so that they can send home a few doses with the, the, you know, fearful cats or um, scared dogs, scared small dogs to take um, before they come in for their next visit. And uh, that is not an ideal situation to call in because it probably reduces the likelihood that people are going to actually get it and give it um, versus if we just send it home with them. And so many medications are like that. You know, we're trained, the more you can just send home with the pet, the more likely it is to actually make it in the pet. And in most cases, in my experience, at least, that seems to be true. Um, so this could really affect how we practice and how we provide care. And so when you said... Um, that you've, Wedgwood has nominated 190 some medications, mm -hmm. um, to be on the positive list. You mean that Wedgwood has looked at its records and submitted 190 or more of the medications that veterinary teams use most often to dispense for, from in-house supplies and has petitioned the FDA basically to say, please allow them to continue doing this. And so That's far right. they've said yes to like 20. Yes. But <laughs> There's good news still in there. Okay. <laughs> there are still like 180 that are under review. So okay. while they're reviewing all the others, they're allowing veterinarians to continue to order for office use. So, you know, I think there's maybe a little, a somewhat fewer than 20 that are on a list called the not listed list. The not listed list are things you absolutely need a patient-specific prescription for. So it's interesting. Some of the nominations have been split where the FDA has said, okay, for these species at these strengths and these dosage forms, we're going to put those on the list you're allowed to order for office use. But for these species and these strengths, we're going to put those on the not listed list. You need a patient-specific prescription. Hmm. But again, FDA has said they're looking to hear from veterinarians. And once they put it on a list, it doesn't mean it's going to be on that list forever. If, if people make a compelling case for why it needs to be used in the office – um, you know, they're considering that. So doxycycline is a good example. It's one of the drugs we nominated. It was on the not listed list. When we nominated it, they moved it to the under review list. 
And now I see on the dockets, there are a lot of veterinarians who are submitting comments about doxycycline and why they need that on hand in the office. So, you know, FDA is going to be reviewing those comments and hopefully um, considering that and making sure that veterinarians have what they need. Um, they're telling us, FDA, the point is not to prevent access to compounded medication. So uh, hopefully they need it and they're going to take that input they're getting from veterinarians seriously and, and thoughtfully consider it. So um, how can veterinarians submit comments and try to sway the FDA to keep certain drugs on the list, the positive list? I There is a link on our website um, to help veterinarians do that. So if you all can put up that link at some point in this podcast, maybe you could uh, pop that into the chat. Um, you know, that will lead you right there. And it makes it easy. It gives you some instructions on, on uh you know, how to do that effectively. And we see veterinarians are following through on that link and they are submitting comments. I just last night went through and, and read about 25 of them. Perfect. So what we'll do is we'll put that link in our show notes. And then we'll also put the link um, when we post this episode, like on social media, we'll make sure that the link is in the, the posts as well. So people can find it multiple places. Um, that is super important and helpful. So thank you. And, you know, I, I, I know that, um, Wedgwood being one of, you know, being a really big player in the compounding field. Um, it's, you know, you, you all have taken on a lot of that burden of trying to submit drugs and make sure that the drugs are there for us to comment on, um, and not have to like go through a whole bunch of different levels to try to get a drug even considered, mm -hmm. um, which is great. What about this? The, I'm sorry, this wasn't on the outline. Now I'm going to ask you anyway. Okay. Um, the, <laughs> what about like the small compounding pharmacy on the corner? You know, there's, there's always one in town that, um, that veterinarians sometimes use instead of a larger like mail order pharmacy mm -hmm. that they'll send clients to maybe if they need something like overnight or in the next two days, they might just send them to this, this sort of mom and pop compounding place. Mm -hmm. Um, what happens if that pharmacy is like, oh no, we can, we can do that for you. We can make a big batch of that for you and you can just keep it in your fridge. That could happen. You know, um, I think that the larger pharmacies are probably going to comply because we get inspected by FDA. So FDA, yeah. there is no question that at some point they're going to be knocking on our door and checking to make sure we're compliant with the GFI 256. Um, smaller pharmacies, you know, FDA may not make it to inspect all those pharmacies, but there also is a chance that state, regulators will try to align their policies to the FDA's current thinking. So the most likely state to do that first is California. They, they, um, they tend to regulate a lot in California. And so I know that even when the draft GFI was out years ago, they were proposing to change their regulations just based on the draft. It wasn't even final yet. So, so I would think that some of the states might align themselves. And I know the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy and the FDA or CBM is doing meetings with the state regulators. And uh, I'm guessing they're going to push them to do that. So those state regulators do go into those local mom and pop shops. So I, th I think also a lot of the local mom and pop shops are already filling mostly patient-specific prescriptions, right? They're, you just mentioned it. They gave a yeah. prescription to a pet owner. They go to the local pharmacy. Well, as long as they capture medical rationale, 
they're they're okay. They're, they they don't have to change anything about exactly. They don't mm-hmm. have to change anything. But that local pharmacy might not be the one supplying you a 480 ml bottle of metronidazole. You might be right. getting from us. So <laughs> so um, pharmacies that do more office use and and work in specialties like equine, we have you know, a specialty in the equine area, in wildlife, in exotic animals, we make medications for all those specialties, and they're more likely to use office use as well. So so I think um, the local pharmacy where you're getting a patient-specific prescription filled, you can still do that, and you can still do that with us. So um, patient-specific is kind of in the program. Um, we just have to capture medical rationale. The other thing that, that I haven't mentioned yet is there will also be a requirement for adverse event reporting. So there's mm an electronic form that the FDA is asking people to fill out. And I think, again, the intent there is to start gather information about safety um, just for everybody's information and safety, right? So that we know what's happening in the marketplace and if there are medications that are having, you know, adverse events reported about, then I'm sure the FDA will be investigating those medications. But I know most compounded medications are old drugs. Veterinarians are very familiar with their use they know when to prescribe them and when not to prescribe them and what the expected side effects are. So, um, so we feel that, you know, veterinarians really are the expert here. Yeah. I've seen in a lot of, um, telehealth conversations too, you know, people saying trust the veterinarian, like we, we work really hard to build trust with our clients and we appreciate being trusted as well to do our jobs and know what our patients need and when. And um, this is another situation where it does seem like, you know, it's been very rare that I could think of an example of a compounded medication that caused problems that wouldn't have also been caused by um, if they'd taken that medication in another form because it was a patient versus drug issue, not a patient versus compounded medication issue. Um, and it, it is nice to hear, um, you know, that that's what we're trying to work towards is keeping the veterinarian in charge of that patient's care. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about is like, you know, if a, if a pharmacy offers to break the, break the rules for you, like maybe that's not a good sign. <laughs> so like if I knew that this was a, that this was like, a, you know, kind of a rule and people were not supposed to do it. And then I had a pharmacy be like, Oh no, that's fine. I probably would think twice about going to them. Um, and I think that's probably a good rule of thumb in general. Yes, like you want your pharmacy to follow the rules. <laughs> yes. Because if somebody's breaking the rules, whether it's a pharmacy or a doctor, like what other rules are they breaking? So, exactly. Yeah. Standards and you yes. know, there are other rules that, that we're all regulated by. So yes, having somebody, you have to do your diligence with whoever you use. And most veterinarians do use two to three compounding pharmacies. So, you know, but you have to do your diligence to make sure they're, they're, um, you know, in good standing with their regulators and following the rules and in good, good quality processes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, a lot of this is state dependent, correct? On like, um, you know, GFI 256 is going to affect compounding in every state at some point. Right. But states have a lot of control over um, how much this is considered like a hard and fast regulation. Well, state regulations in some cases, I would say this is like layered on to state regulations. Okay. In some states, the regulations are more restrictive than the GFI, than the FDA's thinking. And I'll give you some examples. 
there are eight states where they already require a patient-specific prescription for every order of compounded medication. So mm. in eight states, veterinarians are already dealing with that, right? Yeah. Um, in some states, they allow office use, but it's limited to a certain percent of total dispensing, like 5% of dispensing. In some states, they restrict day supply. And that, in my opinion, is one of the worst restrictions. FDA is not restricting the ability for a veterinarian to dispense to their patient. If a, if a patient needs a 30-day supply, they're not restricting the veterinarian. But in some states, and this is popping up more and more, they're limiting veterinarians to a five-day supply or a three-day supply that they can dispense to their patient. When, you know, surveys we've done, veterinarians believe the pet owner will not go get the rest of the prescription filled, right? If they only get a three-day supply, the pet's looking a little better after three days. Okay, I'm not going to pay money to get that filled again, right? So, so that is problematic. So those states are more restrictive. And in other states like Florida, it's much less restrictive. In Florida, veterinarians are permitted to order whatever they need for their practice, whatever serves their patients, and they're allowed to dispense whatever they think is appropriate. So, you know, and, and many states are kind of in, in that in that boat as well. So you really have to consider both the federal guidance and your state regulations when you make decisions about how you're going to practice in this area. Yeah, good to know. Um, I have worked in a couple of different states and it's definitely been, there's been a change in, you know, like, could we keep that big bottle of gabapentin on the shelf? Um, because in some states you already can't do that. And I think that's an important thing for people to know too, is that, um, especially vet teams, because I feel like veterinarians, you know, sort of, um, get more education about this, get more sort of, um, guidance from the other veterinarians they work with. But sometimes like technicians and assistants and CSRs, they're just kind of like, oh, no, we, we can't do that anymore. Or, oh, no, we don't have that anymore. And then they're on the hook staring at the client who's like, but I got this at my last vet, or I don't understand why I have to wait to get this medication. And they don't have the information that they need to have an informed conversation with the client about that. Um, and that is really important because a, a an irritated client trickles back to everyone, but man, that person right in front of them is going to get the brunt of it. Right. And a lot of times that is hearsay, like some, like, you know, a salesperson came in and said that, oh, you can't do that. And, or you can't dispense compounded medication. That was commonly something that people heard. Mm -hmm. But then when you ask, well, point me to the regulation that says that oftentimes they can't point to that regulation. There is no regulation about that. Now there is, you know, in some states, like I said, but it's the exception rather than the rules. So I actually look at this as a possible opportunity, like in those eight states that don't allow any office use. FDA is saying, hey, these drugs really need to be in an office. Um, you know, in states where they're trying to restrict dispensing, FDA is saying, no, if a patient needs this, a veterinarian should be able to give what's appropriate to the patient. So I feel like veterinarians do have an opportunity to work with their state VMA, and we'd be happy to work with any state VMA that wants to work with us. We've done it before to advocate in those states to maybe loosen things up a bit so that they can have access to the really emergency drugs that they need to have on hand. That is awesome. Like, I love the idea of, of advocacy and saying, like, actually, maybe we can change things for our profession because they're not all the same everywhere. Um, and why does somebody in this state have more freedom to practice medicine that the, the way that they need to um, than I do uh, when nothing else is different about us except where we live? Mm -hmm. um, so for people to look up their state's regulations, um, is this a pharmacy board um, or a veterinary um, specific regulation, like where should they be? 
basically, because I, I know it's a lot of Googling usually. So where, where, what are they Googling for to look well, that up? I think that, well, the GFI is not a state regulation at all. Yeah. So that's just, you know, the federal. And again, we have links to that on our website. But for your state regulations, I think most of the restrictive regulations are the pharmacy regulations. And I think one thing that happens for boards of pharmacy is they, they don't really make rules for veterinarians, right? They're thinking mostly about human health when they're making the rules. And that's what happened in Florida. They had passed new regulations in Florida. And when the Florida VMA and Wedgwood met with the Board of Pharmacy and said, hey, veterinarians are hospitals. You know, when you take a patient to a hospital, you expect medication to treat patients in the hospital. And and this regulation is getting in the way of access for patients. Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, well, we weren't thinking about veterinarians when we passed this regulation. So some sometimes the Board of Pharmacy just isn't thinking about the animal patient. So, you know, there is an opportunity to work together to find out what those Board of Pharmacy regulations are. And um, again, to work with your state you know, BMA, I'm sure some people listening to this podcast probably have leadership roles on their state BMAs. Get get that BMA interested in advocating um, if you need change in your state. And again, we have a toolkit that we put together to help state BMAs. And we've been very successful when we work together with veterinarians in that state advocacy. Amazing. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, it's good to, to feel like there's something you can do. So, wait, none of us like sitting around. <laughs> this is not an industry of people that like sitting around, but I think a lot of times people don't realize they can actually help create change. And especially with a, with a pretty powerful partner, you know? Um, so that's wonderful. Um, okay. So what happens if we, as a vet clinic, so we talked about the mom and pop pharmacy. Um, what happens if they bend the rules or are they likely to? What happens if a vet clinic does? Like, say you're like, Ugh, forget that. And you're like, somehow I'm going to prescribe 480 mLs of something for my own patient and keep it in my hospital. Well, one thing that might happen is the pharmacy won't fill 480 mLs for one patient, right? Because right. it has to make sense. Yeah. So they, they might be able to dispense six bottles of something, you know, 30 mLs to you for mm -hmm. six different patients. But, you know, for Wedgwood, we won't be dispensing um, bottles of 480 mLs. So, um, but if the, if the clinic decides to do that, you know, that really is their prerogative. They get to decide whether they're going to comply with the guidance. The FDA is primarily targeting enforcement at the pharmacy level. And they have said in a Q&A that they're not going to question the veterinarian's medical rationale when you give us your medical rationale. And so I'd assume they, they mean that they're not, they're not going to be inspecting veterinary clinics. So, you know, um, they only have so many resources and I'm sure they're going to focus those resources on large pharmacies. So, so we're going to make sure again that we follow the rules and hopefully veterinarians won't make it hard for us to do that or be too upset with us. So that's what we're, we're part of the education process is like, don't be surprised when you call on April 2nd and yeah. we say you need a prescription for something, right? Because yeah. there, there will be times when you used to get something for office use, but you know, mostly things are under review. So most things will be available still for office use on April 1st. And, and, you know, um, hopefully the FDA will be convinced that other things need to be added to the positive list. 
Awesome. So uh, we, again, we'll make sure that that link is in the, the show notes. So if you have a drug that you're like, oh my God, I, I can't live without my in-office supply of this drug, like this is central to how I practice. Don't wait for somebody else to make the comment. Um, the link will be there and you can actually submit comments to the FDA on the drugs that you think are really important to be able to keep in your office to use for your patients. Um, so don't, don't rely on somebody else to do that. <laughs> we like to do that too sometimes, um, especially if it's slightly complicated, as almost everything involving the government can be. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, you know, we've had a team of people working on this for like eight months now yeah. who have been full-time, you know, pharmacists, technicians, you know, multiple pharmacists working on these nominations. They took an awful lot of work. And you know, FDA had expressed to us that they were surprised that veterinarians weren't making these nominations. And we said, well, we're not surprised. They're very busy. They're, they're completely yeah. overstretched. And it was a lot of research and a lot of, um, you know, various books on veterinary medicine and veterinary medications and, and, um, you know, that, that our uh, pharmacists and technicians use to submit these nominations. So I think we've done a lot of the heavy lifting. And now we just need kind of commentary to support those nominations. And so that shouldn't take a veterinarian longer than a few minutes, because really, we've made it very easy to link through and do that. Great. All right, Marcy, thank you so much. Um, is there anything else that you want to make sure people know about GFI 256 or about compounding in general before I ask you my last question, which I'm excited to ask you? Wow. Anything else? Um, just that. <laughs> You're like, everything. This is my chance. <laughs> <laughs> that just how much we appreciate veterinarians and veterinary technicians and all of you that are in a particularly stressful environment these days. We, we hear of staff shortages. We know what's going on. We know people are frustrated and don't treat um, veterinary clinics and, and staff the way that they should. And um, we're just here for you. I know we did a promotion with um, Headspace recently just to kind of bring some peace of mind to veterinarians because we just want to appreciate that it's really, you have a really hard job and you're, you're carers and you're altruistic um, at heart. And so we just really appreciate that we get to work with you and we're honored to work with veterinarians and to support them and, and their patients. So that's what I want to add. Thank you. Anna. Same. <laughs> so I'm not in a clinic right now, and I feel the same way about everybody who's listening. Um, you guys are doing the hard work. So, um, okay. So my last question for you, Marcy, it's March. It's Women's History Month. Uh, love that. And you, I mean, you've been at Wedgwood a long time. You are the CEO now, and you're a woman. And I love that. Like, I love that a big company like Wedgwood has a female CEO. And I'm going to generalize here a little bit, but... I I think that probably has a lot to do with the approach that you just talked about, you know, that Wedgwood is really trying to embrace the veterinary profession in general and not just be like, it is our job to make drugs, <laughs> you know, and I, I can feel that um, every time we talk and um, every time I talk to people from Wedgwood, I get that same feeling. Um, it's a feeling of warmth. And in, in my experience, a lot of women leaders, um, that's very important to them to, um, to sort of lead with warmth and lead with that kindness and, um, sort of embrace of the industry versus, um, more of an authoritarian view. And that's not to say that all male leaders have that approach, but, um, I think we accept it that women can be softer and strong at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
And again, huge generalization, but my experience, that's what I've seen. Mm-hmm. And I think the industry in general could benefit from that approach in a lot of areas where historically that might not have been the case, the veterinary industry. So I wanted to ask you, um, first, do you agree with that? And second, as, um, as a female leader, what advice would you have for our listeners who identify as female and who may be looking to lead, whether it's by title, you know, they already have a leadership position and they're looking to lead differently or better, um, or if they're in a team and they're looking to lead from within the team? Mm-hmm. Good question. So I think that what you said resonates with me um, as far as being like purposeful and really leading with an open heart. It's been something that I've been committed to doing. And, you know, when I first became the president of the company, it was 2013 and the CEO passed away suddenly. And I was an executive vice president. I had half of the company under my reporting responsibility already, but, you know, I became the president of the company. And at first I was in a little bit of a funk because I was like, how do I, like, how would a guy lead? Like, how should I lead? How should I be a leader? Like, how do I be that? Um, not, I mean, I was already a leader, but the leader, right? The leader. Yeah. Um, the buck stops with you kind of leader. Exactly. Yeah. So I was in a funk for a couple of months. And then I just one day got that the best thing I could be was just my authentic self, just to lead from who I am, which is a very heartful person. Like I love are people. I am so inspired by people. And if I'm in a meeting and a junior person gets up to make a presentation and kills it, like I cry because I'm like so moved by them and by how much they've grown since they've been with us and how much they care. And so I just lead from who I am. So I think that's what I would encourage people to do is, you know, being identifying as a certain gender doesn't mean we all think or feel the same way. There might be people that are female. Like my, my CFO is also a woman, by the way. And Love it. she has a very different style than I do. Not that she's not heartful, but she's also more aggressive than I am. Right. So mm-hmm. we have different styles and we're both women, but we mm-hmm. both lead from our authentic selves. So that's one thing I would say people should do is just figure out who you want to be in the world and be that. Don't try to be like, a guy would lead, you know? So that's one thing. And then the other thing is I just, I would advise women who are up and coming leaders to not necessarily focus on being a woman or identifying as a woman, but rather on results. I'm a person that is obsessed with making a great company. And that means listening to the customer and taking action to make it better and taking action, taking action, taking action, and then watching the results that get produced by being in action about being a great company. So I would, I just really am obsessed with that. And the people that I've seen male or female who succeed and who move up the ladder are not concerned about their titles. They're not concerned about looking good. They're not concerned about fitting in. They're concerned about making an impact. So um, for anyone who wants to, I guess, ascend in an organization, like be someone who makes an impact, like a positive impact that is undeniable. So that's, that's the advice I would give. That's great advice. And yeah, you can do that no matter what your title, or even if you aspire to have a different title or not, because leading from within is a real thing. And 
this profession has that and needs needs as much of it as we can get because most of the people in this profession are not quote unquote leaders. They are, you know, what we typically call support team members. But to me, everybody's equally important as far as influencing the culture and the conversations around them. And you don't know how much power you have to influence those conversations. Um, everybody has that power. So definitely, um, I love that advice. And, um, yeah, and, and I can say, you know, our CEO, would probably cry too. So and I don't think he'd mind me saying that because he put it on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, and, and he's a man, you know, everybody yeah. coming to work as your authentic self is a gift and it's a gift to yourself and it's a gift to everyone around you. And sometimes I think we give women and, you know, people who identify as women, we give them an unfair advantage there because we tell them it's okay to do things like cry and talk mm-hmm. about feelings and say how proud they are of people and like get misty eyed during speeches. And everybody can do that. And it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, male, female, um, non-binary, it doesn't matter. Um, you, you have a gift that is unique to you. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when you bring it, when you bring your authentic self, um, you know, people just connect better and appreciate that. And you can enroll people in just being, like you said, even if you don't have leader in your title, mm-hmm. you can lead things in the organization that make a difference for your customers and make a difference for your coworkers, you know, and that's so important. Well, Marcy, thank you so much. This has been so fun. And um, I, I hope that everybody goes to that link and leaves comments. Yes, (laughs) please do comment and please be kind to your compounding pharmacist when they (laughs) ask for a prescription on April 1st, um, you know, for the like 20 items that we have to ask for a prescription for now. So um, we'll continue to advocate for you. And uh, again, we love working in this industry. Thanks, Marcy. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.